Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Um, I'm David Freeman. I'm just going to introduce the participants in this session and then come, come back and take your questions. The book in question is called What is the What? And there are two quotations. One from the New York magazine that said, truly heartbreaking, and then under that there's one from Time. And it says, one of the year's most moving novels. Uh, and I don't think that's true. I think it's more important than that. I think it's bigger than that. I think it's more affecting than that. It's a story written by one man about the life of another. And what makes this an event? Everything at Hay is called an event. But I think this really is an event. You've probably seen the story written up in The Guardian. I've seen it in The Guardian. I've seen it in The Sunday Times. But there is no substitute for hearing it from the lives of the man who's brought it to life and the man who lived it. So would you please welcome Dave Eggers, who wrote the book, and Valentino Ashak-Deng, who the book is about. Hi. Can you, Thank does you. Does it work? Yep, it works. Is there a scale back there? Oh, no, it's a clock. It looks like a scale for a second. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I want it to be a thermometer uh, to see just how cold it is. It's kind of cold uh, today. <laughs> how are you dealing with it? You, Valentino, you just said it back there. Well, I, was, I don't like the, was not the expect, cold so much. I was how not you expecting it. it to be this cold. So <laughs> I, don't even have, I don't even have a T-shirt inside. The T-shirt is the key shirt. thing for you and your warmth. I found. If you're not wearing it, that's when you're always chilled, but otherwise you seem impervious if you have your t-shirt on. Normally I dress well in the cold weather, but I wasn't expecting the weather to be this cold. I was expecting it to be summertime. <laughs> so, but this so is a new experience. Um, let's, uh, I wanna, I'm going to back up a little bit and just, there's a paragraph introduction. I, 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 I read about Valentino's life that just orient uh, every. Oh really? Oh. Can can you hear in the back? You and the and the Johnny Cash hat. You can hear me, and then, but in here you can't. Can you hear me as well? <laughs> then we need a technician to solve this problem here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what? I think if a volume might just help. Oh, just the volume. the volume? You're a technician, it sounds like. You know what you're doing. You want to come? Uh, we could try to, if, does it matter if we talk louder? You're hearing me, though. You already keep understanding what I'm saying. Or maybe we need a volunteer to do some technician work. You, I think you have to be louder. You have to project. Uh, I'm louder, right? Is it getting any better? I don't know. Okay, good. I guess we've been... Okay, thanks. So, um, I, uh, I'm going to read this one paragraph uh, that will just uh, explain, uh, 
give a little bit of background. And it's odd always reading it right next to Valentino, but he's heard it many times, so um, bear with me now. Right. Valentino Ashakdeng was about six years old when militiamen known as the Murahaleen, the same sort that now plagued Darfur as the Janjaweed, invaded his village of Mariobai, murdered hundreds, raped and enslaved women and young girls, and burned the village to the ground. Separated from his family, he and thousands of other young boys and girls walked about 800 miles through war-torn southern Sudan, struggling through and often succumbing to dehydration, starvation, disease, and attacks by animals and overhead bombers, to finally make it to Ethiopia, where they became the reason for the Pinudo refugee camp. After three years of relative stability, during which many of the boys became child soldiers, Ethiopia's regime was overthrown, and the boys were again cast out, chased from Ethiopia at gunpoint with many thousands killed while fleeing across the Gilo River. After wandering again through Sudan, the boys were finally given sanctuary in a dry and desolate part of northwest Kenya known as Kakuma. There, Valentino and his brethren spent 10 years until the year 2000, when about 4,000 were resettled in cities across the United States. And that's when a whole new set of difficulties arose. Um, do you want to, you know, uh, we were in uh, Brighton yesterday and we were talking about you seeing the ocean for the first time when you uh, flew from Nairobi to the U.S. And do you remember, you went through this process, you were at Kakuma for 10 years, and then there was word that spread throughout the camp that the U.S. was willing to take maybe 4,000 young men. And you had to go through this process of applying and telling your story and then being interviewed by immigration officers and lawyers and et cetera. And then finally, you were one of the very last guys in your class of unaccompanied minors at Kakuma to be taken. And you were on one of the very last flights. And do you remember that day and sort of those days that you were finally leaving and what happened then? I, I left Sudan in 1987 and I was born in late 1980s. At that time, Sudan had had a civil war for a couple of years because the war began in 1983. And the Morahalin, the same uh, group we know today as Janjaweed in Darfur, were very much involved and operating in regions covering my village. And uh, one day, I was separated from my family in one of those attacks. And I joined multitudes of people who were uh, fleeing Sudan to go to Ethiopia to the refugee camps. I did not know that the journey I was beginning was going to last long. I thought that it would take me days or weeks to get back with my family. But uh, days become weeks, and weeks became months. And it took me three and a half months to arrive in Western Ethiopia. That was when I realized that I had gone far from my family, and that it was not going to be very easy to try to get back. It was the same time that I had experienced uh, some atrocities of civil war rampant death, uh, gradual dying of people through hunger and diseases. And I had seen uh, 
bombings and casualties of bombings. And at that point, I began to think about my life and what I would do to resist all of these things happening around me before I even attempt to go back to meet my family. Do you want to talk about, let's start at, well, let's, want to talk about that, but that when you finally left Kakuma in September, do you remember, can you talk about that, that time, I mean, those days when you finally got on a plane and you were leaving? Well, I left Kakuma on September 8th, 2001, and I had my original flight scheduled on September 11th, 2001. I was at Jumbo Kenyatta International Airport on that day, just hoping to leave for New York when we heard news that America was under attack and that the attack was from an unknown enemy. Few minutes later, I heard that my flight had been canceled, and as a result, I had to go back to my hotel in Nairobi and wait for further notice from the airlines or from aviation in Nairobi. It took me two weeks and a couple of days before my flight was approved, and on September 25th, I arrived in New York at 7.30 in the morning, met with my case worker who told me that my, the plan that the resettlement agency had for me within the United States had been changed. I was originally going to go to San Jose in California, but due to the changes, I was, I was being sent to a new place and I began to worry because at that time I had concern about the climatic conditions in the northern part of the United States. And I do not want to be sent to Fargo in particular. <laughs> and a lot because, of guys were sent to Fargo. Yeah, I, I had seen letters. And Detroit and, and uh, Maine. I had seen letters and pictures of some of my friends who went there early and their primary concern was the weather. But my caseworker told me that uh, I was not going there. I thought I was going to Atlanta. And Atlanta was the place I heard about in 1996 when the Olympic Games were played there and the Nigerian national soccer team, the Super Eagles, won the Olympic. It was the great news across Africa, and I happened to see it on the televisions news. So I, I knew about Atlanta. What I did not know at that time was that it was in the southern part of the United States and in Georgia in particular. So I inquired more about it because I had another concern. I am from Sudan and Sudan was in the news a lot soon after September 11. The Sudanese government had collaborated with Osama bin Laden at some point. And I just wanted, I was worried that as a Sudanese, I might be sent away from the United States. So I asked my caseworker to tell me more about Atlanta. And as soon as I found out that it was in the US, my question was, OK, I'm ready, I'm willing to go. 
That's how I ended up going to Atlanta and began my new life. I, uh, and so that was in September of 2001, and about a year later, I got a letter in the mail uh, from Mary Williams, who was the head of something called the Lost Boys Foundation. When the Lost Boys were resettled in clumps all over the U.S., um, dozens of cities, usually in groups of a few dozen or even a few hundred, um, they were given three months of aid, $800 um, to pay rent, to get established, uh, and then they were on their own. Uh, they even had to repay the flight that brought them to the U.S. They had to repay that ticket eventually. And so all these guys had been sort of, all of you had been harboring dreams of going to the U.S. and almost immediately enrolling in college, being students, um, having that taken care of, and then eventually graduating and, and going on from there. And um, you were faced with the harsh reality of the fact that you had a few months of, uh, of aid, and then after that you were on your own. You had to pay rent. You had to find a full-time job. All of what, most of these jobs were low-paying jobs that uh, you had to take on and immediately start working from there. And um, that made going to college very difficult. That made even getting adjusted very difficult because you were working so much that all of these other problems, insurance and cars and, you know, um, dealing with the day-to-day, -day, even dealing with some of the appliances and stuff that you guys hadn't had in Kakuma, um, became all of these little problems. But Mary Williams w created something called the Lost Boys Foundation, and her biography, by the way, is really fascinating on its own. She grew up as the daughter of Black Panthers in East Oakland, California, and, um, and through a strange series of events, be uh, became the adopted daughter of Jane Fonda and Ted Turner. Um, many years later, this is a true story. Um, and anyway, she lived in Atlanta, and she had seen uh, articles in, uh, in the media about uh, the Lost Boys, and she knew that there was this gap uh, between what they had been provided by the government and by other immigration organizations and uh, all of the needs that happened after that after those three months. So she created the Lost Boys Foundation to create sort of a bridge uh, between that and to, and to help with jobs, with college, with mentors, with sponsors, um, with church groups. And um, can you talk about, I got this letter in the mail that basically said that she knew of a young man named Valentino and he wanted help writing his biography. And I, I had no contact with Mary before. I didn't, I had only read the, you know, the usual articles in the media. Can you tell me why, how did that idea come about? How did you guys start talking about that and why did you want it written? After I arrived in Atlanta, I met with my case worker from the International Rescue Committee and who briefed me about the plan they had for me. And the plan was that the resettlement agency would pay my rent for three months and they would give me 800 in an in installment form for four months, and that the resettlement agency will help me apply for Medicaid, the medical insurance in the U.S., and that the resettlement agency will also help me find my first jobs. That was clear to me. They told me all of that, but what was not clear was the, one of my primary objective for resettling into my third country, and that was to pursue uh, further education. 
uh, I asked my case worker about my ability to go to school, and he told me that the policy of the resettlement programs is that they can only help a minor, somebody younger, and not somebody older than 18 years old to go to school. At that point, I realized that my ability to go to school will depend on me, and that I also will not be able to qualify for financial aids to go to college, since I did not have a permanent residency status yet. I had to stay for more than a year to get that. But also, uh, the resettlement agency did all it could to help me. They are only dependent on federal grants and, and finance. And I could not complain to them so much. I also need to help them raise more money, uh, to, as that is my understanding today. I began my first job at uh, Christmas gift shops, and I was wrapping Christmas gifts for customers. Then uh, it's there that I met with the idea of Santa Claus. It was around Christmas time, and I started hearing this song, Santa Claus is Coming, here and there. And I did, not, I did not know about Santa Claus. So I said, what is this Santa Claus coming to town? <laughs> and, and then I heard about it later, which is fun, by the way. <laughs> And then I, I, I applied for my second job, which was at the Best Buy, the appliance and technology stores. And my work was as a salesperson and merchandise sometime. I left that job because there was a lot of music. There were stereos and televisions, and I would turn them on and change channels and all of that. And, but the job takes me four hours to go and come back, and it was a part-time job. That means I worked in Atlanta. Yeah, I worked Atlanta. for four hours too. So I stopped that job soon later, and then began my third job. At this time, Mayor Williams began to invite me to speak for the foundation at events where the foundation was raising funds, or at events where I would just meet with the people and explain the situation back in my country. Sudan. I also realized that not many people knew more details about Sudan and that the name Lost Boy itself is quite famous than the country where I came from. And that is the country where 2.5 million people have died during a war that began in 1983 and ended in 2005. That is all in southern Sudan. And I know that in southern Sudan, over 4 million southern Sudanese were killed during that same period. I mean, were displaced, 4 million displaced within the country. And that over a million southern Sudanese are scattered all over the world. And, and many of these voices have not you know, been able to express their own uh, experience. And I decided that I was going to tell my story in a book-written form, and that my story would be a microcosm of many lives and many voices from Sudan who have not been able to tell of their own experiences. At that time, I asked Mary to find me or to connect me with a writer 
who will help me do that. That is the idea. That was the best. I wanted to be able to reach to a wider audience and to be able to share my experience with the world. You know, right now, the awareness of what was going on with the war between the North and the South, the Sudan People's Liberation Army rose up in 1983 against the government in Khartoum, and um, for a lot of different reasons, and one of the chief ones at the time was the, this, the northern Islamic government had imposed Sharia law, Islamic law, on, on the whole country, including the South, uh, which is largely uh, Christian and animist, and, uh, and this was seen as uh, uh, overly oppressive, and, and so the SPLA, for that reason and many others, rose up, and around that time, that's when uh, the Sudan... Uh, the government of Sudan imposed this policy of to catch a fish, drain a pond, and they unleashed these militias, uh, then known as the Murahaleen, um, on the south, basically to wreak havoc and to punish the south and the villages and towns from which the rebels supposedly or did uh, arise. And um, they wreaked havoc, they killed, they murdered, they were, and then they were paid uh, the cheapest way anyone can pay an army, which is... Uh, they were allowed to cart off and take whatever they wanted, and that was uh, livestock and also the people, and they uh, brought them back north. And um, this is very similar in many ways to what's going on in Darfur, right? What is the difference between the Murahaleen and the Janjaweed? There is no difference between the Murahaleen, who tortured, burns, and, and massacred many people in my, country, in my village from the Janjaweeds who are now committing atrocities in the western Sudan part of Darfur. They are basically from the same groups. They're from the same territory. And they are the same people. The only difference is that they have started going west now to Darfur as opposed to the 80s and 90s when they were trained, armed, and sent to the south. And they are committing similar atrocities, attacking villages, taking away livestock, grains, and any food items, and anything that could gain them wealth, and also burning villages, poisoning water wells and water sources, raping women, abducting children. Those are the same things we hear in Darfur today. The Murahaleen and the Janjaweed is not a different group. It's the same group they had at one point were known as Murahaleen. Then they became known as Popular Defense Forces. And they changed from there and became Mujahideen. Then when the peace agreement between the North and the Southern Sudanese warring parties was ended in January 2005, already... Uh, a war had begun in the western Sudan part of Darfur. While the negotiations were going on, While the there were rebel groups in Darfur that rose up thinking, well, if they can get attention from the government, if they can um, gain, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and be brought to the negotiating table and given more power in the government and more share of wealth, then we might as well rise up too. The SLA rose up, am I right? And then, yeah. and then again, while they're at the negotiating table right here, solving the, solving the war under the, you know, the eyes of the international community, um, uh, solving the war between the North and the South, 
At the same time, they're enabling and arming and sending the same militias to Darfur to punish the towns and villages there for the rising up of these rebel groups. It was an incredible time. Yeah, it's the, I, I don't know what to add into that. Let's Just completed talk, it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Let's talk about um, when you left your home. The, the militias had come many times, and you'd also had your town strafed by government helicopters. And when it was, the militias had burned Mario Bai to the ground a couple times before, and when they finally, this third time, and you were six or seven years old and you left, um, the, the militias would encircle the town at dawn and then come from every side and then um, uh, burn and loot and murder and, and everybody would uh, run in every which way and then sometimes the town would assemble itself again and try to rebuild and, until the next time they came. And in this case, you ran off and, um, and thinking that you would only be gone a few days, you joined other boys and a few elders who were you thought we're just going to help you, you know, survive for a few days until uh, uh, the militias were gone and that you would return. Um, but it became a longer journey. I'm going to read one paragraph uh, about that when you joined hundreds of others. And uh, I'm going to ask you something after that about it. I, I became accustomed to the walking, to the aches in my legs and the, the joints of my knees to the pains in my abdomen and kidneys, to picking thorns out of my feet. In those early days, it was not so difficult to find food. Each day, we would pass through a village, and they would, begin, they would be able to provide us with enough nuts and seeds and grain to sustain us. But this became more trying as our group grew, and it grew. We absorbed boys and occasionally girls every day we walked. In many cases, while we were eating in a given village, there began negotiations between Dut he was the main elder that was guiding them, and the elders of the town. And by the time we had eaten and were on our way, the boys of that village were part of our group. Some of these boys and girls still had parents, and in many cases it was the parents themselves who were sending their children with us. We were not at the time fully aware of why this would be, why parents would willingly send their children on a journey, a barefoot journey into the unknown. But these things happened, and it is a fact that those who were volunteered by their families for the journey were usually better equipped than those of us who joined the march for lack of other options. These boys and girls were sent with extra clothing and bags of provisions and, in some cases, shoes and even socks. But soon enough, these inequities were no more. We took only a few <coughs> it took only a few days before any member was as bereft as the rest of us. After they had traded their clothes for food, for a mosquito net, for whatever luxuries they could afford, they were sorry. Sorry that they did not know where they were walking. Sorry that they had joined this procession in the first place. None of us had ever walked so long in one day, but we continued to walk, every day walking farther, none of us knowing that we would never return. Do you remember when you had a sense of when it changed from being just um, seeking temporary safety to something else, when the journey became something permanent, when you were heading to an actual destination, and when you knew that that would be Ethiopia. Do you remember when that? Yeah, I, as I said before from the beginning, the, the, I left not knowing that the journey would take long. I left not knowing that I'll have to be waking up a down every day and 
and had struggle. And then sometimes uh, I had not realized that I would be able to run out of food. I would be crossing rivers. I would be sleeping outdoors. But then when these things became reality, when I found myself in the middle of chaos, you know, I noticed that, oh, I've gone so far and that I needed some alternatives. And one alternative was that going back to my village proved difficult and very dangerous because at that time in southern Sudan, every moving subject was a target. And even animals, livestock, were bombed by the Sudanese air forces. And if 10 of you were moving and you were escorted by a government's helicopter gunships, you could be fired upon. And there were so many incidents like that. So the best option was to stick with my groups. And the best option was to hope that this war will come to an end. And when the times happen, then I will be able to go back to my village and reunite with my family. The other hopes was that I will have to continue, that I will have to persist, endure, and make sure that I arrive in Ethiopia. And whatever helps and whatever connection I will find there was what I need to utilize for my future uh, survival and that is exactly what happened I, when I realized that I could not go back home because of the insecurity. Then I, I stick on new friends. I stuck on new environment and kept on changing places from one, another, from one place to another. And that's how I ended up going to the, coming to the U.S. actually. Few weeks before I left the U.S., I had actually found out that my family was alive. So I even had to make a decision between going to America and meeting with my family, and what my future would mean between the two. I want to, uh, man, um, I want to talk about Ethiopia. When we started doing this, we. We met in uh, January of 2011, I mean, uh, January 11th of 2003, and um, it was on the occasion of the birthday party for all of the uh, Lost Boys in Atlanta, about 180 guys that were living there. And uh, at, the, at Kakuma, they had all been processed and, uh, uh, by the UN and given the same birthday. Um, most of the guys didn't know their birthdays. Um, and they were assigned ages and birthdays and were all given the same birthday of January 1st. And so um, in Atlanta, every year, all the guys that were living there would celebrate their birthday together around you know, the first couple weeks in January. And that's when we met and we started working on this, um, not really knowing where it would go at first and just starting with a tape recorder in, your, in Valentino's apartment. And, um, and it... Uh, I think that for the first bunch of months that we were talking and recording, the stories stayed very close to the headlines and, and the things that a lot of it had been written quite, about, uh, quite a lot about, um, the, 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 mostly about this journey, this epic journey that took you to Ethiopia. And there were lion attacks along the way and crocodile attacks and uh, helicopter attacks and Antonov bombers um, from above. 
And it was only after like many months of working together and trying to assemble the story that we realized that to do this well, it was going to need to be filled out in so many different ways. And there had to be the full scope of Valentino's life. And, and, uh, and that would mean the, the, uh, this, these other periods of stability, three years in Ethiopia, 10 years in Kukuma, and what took place during those times. And one of the things that uh, we, you know, we realized was that you know, Valentino was uh, nine, ten uh, years old at, at, in, in this camp in Pinudo, and there was stability, and there was school there. And, um, and at the same time, some of the older kids, this was very close to an SPLA, a rebel army base. The rebel army was based, for the most part, um, in Ethiopia. It was supported by the Ethiopian government. And so there was that interplay between even some of the older boys that you know, that you knew, were heading off to war. Some of them were volunteering for the army. They wanted to go back and avenge their families. What was it like to sort of see some of the older boys you know go and do that and say, you know, I'm gonna join the, I'm gonna join the SPLA. I'm gonna avenge my town. I'm gonna go back. And how did you balance that between what you were missing at home and thinking about trying to make a life in, in Ethiopia? And did you know that you were gonna be there for so long? Well, part of me at that time would have agreed to go back and fight because there was no other options than just fight to finish and protect your people. Just imagine how you looked at your town invaded by an enemy and then you can imagine the crying of women, people who have been ripped and men were targeted and they left and the people became vulnerable to Morahlin. They became subject of any kind of abuse. And at that time, many young people who were in Ethiopia had no solution at all than just join the rebels and go back to fight. The Sudan People's Liberation Army were so careful about accepting boys to join the army because they have enough manpower. They did not need us. Sometimes some boys were beaten and sent away to join them. And, but part of me today would not agree to go back to war because I regret war in, at all costs. I don't think that war is a solution to any problems. It wasn't a solution to people in my country. Sudan is known today because of war. That's it. Anytime I meet someone and I, I introduce myself to them that I am from Sudan, the first image is Darfur, it's genocide, it's hunger, it's diseases, it's needs. That is quite regrettable. And it all happened. It all happened because of war in my country. And uh, the other part of me, you know, says that for those friends of mine who went back to war, many of them are not alive. They have done their part. They went to protect their people. They went to fight for their fathers and mothers and sisters who were killed, raped, and, and abused in so many ways, and they thought that that was the solution. They were young enough to know what was happening in real sense. So in other way, I both parts 
are okay. One of them was acceptable at that time, and then one of that one of them that doesn't want me to fight to bring any solution is part of me now, and that's where I held my belief. Now you you went to school in uh, Pinudo for three years, and I remember we were talking about those years, and we had gotten it so much of what was. I mean, the book, when we first met that, uh, that winter in 2003, I, and we decided to do, to really, you know, to, to make this, uh, to, to work on it until we were finished and to see it through. We, I, I promised Valentino it would take a year. Um, I thought, we've got to get the story out. We have to let people know. And um, it'll only take a year, and it will publish it, and it'll be great. And then you'll be able to use the proceeds however you want and rebuild Mario Bay. And, I had a lot of really silly uh, ideas at that time, and I was uh, totally overestimating uh, my uh, limited abilities uh, at the time, and so, period. And, but I remember that one of the things that came about was that we had to spend so much time together, um, traveling together and, and talking and, and trying to get off the script, the script that we knew from the popular media, the script that you had used when you would do speaking engagements. And to get at, you know, the real, the, the full humanity of, you know, of those years, especially those 13 years uh, where you grew up in the camps. And so, and I remember there was one time that uh, we were uh, in San Francisco and Valentino had been visiting for a while and uh, I was taking him to the airport and I, I had just started having this idea. We stopped at... Uh, 826 Valencia, this nonprofit that we have where it's, there's after-school tutoring in San Francisco, and we were watching the kids, and they're like 9 and 10, 11 years old, and we started seeing that they were just, you know, starting to notice each other as members of the opposite sex, and there's a little bit of flirting, puppy love going on, and then we, we, I took Valentino to the airport, and, um, and I was feeling really strange about asking this, but I had to ask whether or not there was that kind of a thing going on in Pinudo. If you knew girls, if you had interest in girls, amidst everything else, but there was some, there were some stable years there, and uh, I, I hesitated in asking, but uh, do you remember that conversation? <laughs> the conversation was we saw uh, young kids, young boys and girls playing, and, and Dave asked me if I have had, uh, you know, girls in my life before. And he was like, Valentino, did you ever have girls in your life? And I said, oh, yeah. There were, there were some girls we nicknamed Royal Girls of Pinudo, and they were in my class. The and I was, yeah, and I was their friend. Just that roughly, not knowing that this would become a subject of interest for the book. <laughs> yeah. And at, you know, I had a way, you know, I grew up from a different culture where it was prohibited to talk about your affairs with your girlfriend in public. So, and I had always tried to be very careful about revealing anything about my relationship with the girls or, or anything of that kind. But at that point, you sent me an email later asking for more details about <laughs> my experience with the girls. Many emails. After that, I'm going to read a few paragraphs from that school part um, that covers the royal girls of Pinudo. Um, this is after they'd been in the camp for about a, a year. 
By the time school began, most of us had bartered successfully enough to have clothed ourselves, and when we sat down that first day, we really felt like students, and the school really seemed like a school. The classrooms were thatched, roofs without walls, and on the first morning of classes, the 51 boys sat on the ground and waited. Finally, a man strode in and introduced himself as Mr. Condit. He was a tall man, very thin, with an extraordinarily small skull. He wrote his name on the chalkboard, and we were greatly impressed. Only a few among us could recognize any letters at all, but still we stared at the white marks on the board and blinked, happy to watch whatever might happen next. A, B, C. He wrote the three letters and read them aloud, demonstrating the sounds they denoted. Because we had no pencils or paper, Mr. Condit sent us outside. There we copied the letters into the dirt with sticks or our fingers. Make your letters neat, he barked from the chalkboard. You have three minutes. If you make a mistake, erase your letter and draw it again. When you have three letters that are to your satisfaction, raise your hand and I will inspect your work. Hands were raised and Mr. Condit began to make his rounds. I had never written before. The first time I tried to write a letter B in the dirt, Mr. Condit came behind me and clucked disapprovingly. He leaned over and grabbed my finger roughly, then guided it through the dirt to make the proper B, pushing my forefinger so hard into the ground that my fingernail cracked and bled. You must do better, he yelled to the crowns of our heads. I want you to succeed, boys. If we are ever to have a new Sudan, you must succeed. If I'm ever impatient, it's because I cannot wait for this godforsaken war to end and for you to assume your role in the future of our ruined land. And jumps ahead a little bit. Not long after the schools opened, another strange thing happened. They brought girls to class. There were very few girls at Pinudo in general, and there were no girls in any of the schools at all, as far as I could tell. But one morning, as the 51 boys in Mr. Condit's class settled onto the ground before the blackboard, we noticed four new people, all of them female, sitting in the front row. Mr. Condit was squatting before these new people, talking to them, placing his hands on their heads in a familiar way. We were baffled. Class, Mr. Condit said, rising to his full height, we have four new students today. Their names are Agar, Akan, Agum, and Yara Ketch. They should be treated with respect and courtesy because they are all very good students. They are also my nieces, so I expect that you will be that much more careful about your behavior around them. <laughs> Do you remember uh, what, and now, you wanted to get their attention, and so, what was your strategy to uh, get in with the royal girls of Pinudo? Well, Mr. Kondit had warned the entire class, and, and no one dare interfering with that rules, because I went to school where corporal punishment was uh, available, and you don't need to mess with us. And at the same time, the girls were a subject of greater attention to many of us in the class. Everybody wanted them to sit on the bench, and many places were offered. But the fear was Mr. Condit, and we established uh, a strategy. And particularly my strategy was to befriend Mr. Condit. <laughs> and, and that means doing a lot of homework, reading, and also answering questions most accurately when he asked any questions, and also volunteering to clean the, bla the blackboards and, and provide any needs that he needed. And meanwhile, tr 
trying to approach the girls on the other hand, <laughs> and he will ignore that. Let me get to the end of this. It took the entire semester, but finally my efforts toward the royal girls bore fruit. With one week left before classes let out for a month, as I was leaving school one day, a gum positioned herself in front of me and said something. It seemed impossible, and I treated it as such. I said nothing, for I did not believe that she was really speaking to me. But was it possible? And if so, what had she said? I had to piece the words together. I had been looking at her eyes, her lashes, her mouth that was so close to mine. A shock, my sister has something to ask you, she had said. Agar, the eldest and tallest, was suddenly next to her. Her sister stomped on her foot and was punched in return. I didn't know what was happening, but it seemed good so far. <laughs> Do you want to come to lunch at our house, Agar asked. I realized at that moment that I had been standing on my tiptoes. I righted myself, hoping that they had not noticed. Today, I asked. Yes, today, she said. I thought a moment. I thought long enough to think of the wrong thing to say. I cannot accept, I said. So what was that about? <laughs> that was a huge mistake of that time. <laughs> I, you know, I, I remembered some teaching from my father that when a woman asks you, uh, don't say yes. <laughs> and at this point, you know, my father was talking about adultery, <laughs> and not with not, much. Not, not, not not with the young girls of my age. <laughs> and I realized that I had applied my father's teaching in a. Do absolutely different scenario, <laughs> and it, the, the whole thing works out well later, and the, the girls and I became good friends. But that was it. You make mistakes sometimes. <laughs> that was like the. Uh, you go ahead, David. Yeah. You're, okay. You're no, I, I only come on because I've been sent because the, the time is ticking away, yeah. and there is so much of the book left to cover. Uh, I mean, this could be a, a three-hour session. So um, I'm just going to ask one question and then um, pass it over to you. When you started, it was going to be a biography, wasn't it? Um, and then on the, on the book, it says a novel. Was this the only way that it could be done? I, my, my original planning was that this should be a pure biography. But I also was aware that I was not a writer in the first place. I had a vision, and I want not only to tell my story, because I needed talk so that people could know about me, but I had a situation in my country which was growing from bad to worse, an additional war in Darfur, and I need the story to reach out to the wider audience. When we began working on the story, you know, the early planning was that it was going to be a pure biography. And, and Dave and I, both of us, had challenges working on the book. I told you before that relieving my life, recalling activities that took place in my life in the past, was not an easy thing. I have lost some close family members. I have lost some close friends. I have seen things that a child is not supposed to see at that time, including burying my friend when I was nine years old. I could not you know, manage to recall every detail of that without 
re-traumatizing myself. On the other hand, Deb too needed to see what the sky was like on those days, and I wasn't, I did not have time to see the sky when I was fleeing. What happened is that also there were so many characters in the book, like I might, I had more than friends called Deng. More than and what? More, more than 10 friends called Deng, and I am Deng. And if we had each of these characters in the books, it would be a disaster to the readers. <laughs> okay. I also have many times and have been to many towns in Sudan. I have walked across 800 miles to get to Ethiopia and maybe 300 or 500 more miles from Ethiopia to Kenya. I cannot remember every detail of this. So to combine different characters needed that nine dings had to be eliminated and one ding had to carry on the story. It needed that a time has to be compressed. The story even began in Atlanta where it was supposed to begin from my village. And you could see that. And then Dave has to be able to have the freedom of putting together different devices. That is why the book is called a novel, and Dave could add on that. Otherwise, it is purely and historically accurate. Many of the things in the book have happened. I have lived those experiences, and, and I, have, I still have many elements that could make up another biography. <laughs> We're not done. <laughs> That's the first I've heard of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. A new, a new chapter that. opens. Yes, um, qu questions. Quick, yes, madam, there. To Valentino, um, I worked in Sudan, it's very close to my heart. As a Sudani, what would you like to see the international communities do to alleviate the suffering of Sudanese people? Well, there are two things happening in Sudan now. One which is a burning issue is uh, the situation in Darfur. That conflict needs to be brought to an end very quickly. Otherwise, the numbers of people dying in Darfur will keep climbing. Many resolutions will continue to be signed between the UNs and the warring parties in Sudan, but death will continue to go on. So that war needs our pressure. That war needs us to write to our members of parliament, to write to our heads of states, our prime ministers, and, and ask them that this situation needs to be brought to an end. I don't believe that the warring parties or the leaders of the warring parties in Sudan are absolutely bad people. They would not agree that members of their family die if they were in the situation of the civilians who are dying in Darfur. So we should, we need to encourage them. We need our leaders to talk to them that they come to a round table, negotiate, and bring peace to the country. They should compromise. They should tolerate. They should uh, forgive each other and reconcile and bring peace to that nation. It has been so long. Since 1955, Sudan had been in different wars in itself, and it has not paid us Sudanese any 
success at all. The Sudanese who went overseas are as painfully affected by the war in the country like those who are back home in the country. On the other hand, there was the CPA, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement that was signed in January 2005 between the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, a former Sudan People's Liberation Army rebels in the south, and the governments of Sudan. That peace agreement had many protocols, and it allowed southern Sudanese to carry out referendums in 2011. There are some problems here and there in trying to implement that peace agreement, and all of the parties that came together to push the warring parties from the south and north to sign that peace agreement still have the obligation to stay close to the leaders and even to help with developments in that part of the country because peace alone is not peace unless there is development. Those are the two areas where we could help in Sudan. And a Sudanese expert or a politician could explain more to you about this. Any more? Um, it's, it's there and then there. Hi. Um, just wanted to ask Dave, really. You wrote your own, you wrote your autobiography and then you've had to deal with writing about someone else's life. Can you sort of compare and contrast the two processes? of you know, writing about yourself and then having to handle someone else's you know, deeply personal experiences. How was it? Um, in, in a way, it was, uh, it was infinitely harder uh, as a process because it just took so long to gain the fluency so that I would even know what questions to ask Valentino and get the chronology exactly right and, and, um, and to be able to write with confidence about the, the the people of southern Sudan and the war. And so that was um, not fun uh, most of the time. It was really uh, uh, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, whereas so many parts of writing that first book were fun. I mean, you're just sitting and writing about parts of your life that you found entertaining or whatever that you, uh, but they were both, um, you know, the duty to the people that are still alive and the people that have passed on is so great in both cases. You know, your duty to your family to get it right and to get it and to, and to be careful. And uh, the duty to Valentino's family, who I had met, we went back to Sudan in 2003 and went back to his hometown. And uh, after I had met everybody, his mother and his father and the extended family and seen the people of Mario Bai, I felt like this added burden. Like I really had to make sure it was exactly right in every way. And that just meant showing it to Valentino and dozens of others before we published it. But um, otherwise, the processes really couldn't have been more different in terms of one required, you can just sit and write your own story, blah, 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 you know, here are my interesting thoughts about my life, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's supposed to be like a joke. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and uh, although there was a lot of really incredibly painful parts of writing that, but in this case, it was really much more of just a sense of after we had known each other, and I kept, kept taking longer and longer, too. You know, it wasn't one year. It was over four years that it took. And so it was, um, 
it was incredibly hard the whole time through. And the longer that we knew each other and the more I had a sense of obligation toward Val and knowing, you know, that I was, uh, I just had to fulfill my promise not to just get it down but to tell the story well, I guess. And that was the hardest thing of all. It was one thing to write it, put together an oral history. It was another thing to make it something that would really actually maybe reach people and maybe affect change. And that, that was the hardest thing yeah, about in, it. In just one sentence, is it surprising to you, and now you Valentina so well, that so much can happen to one guy, that one guy seems to be in a magnet for stuff to yeah. happen? Uh, it, it, it's incredibly surprising because Valentino's suffering really didn't stop in yeah. Sudan or in Kakuma. Every, his life in the U.S has been incredibly different in a bunch of different, in, in other ways. And, you know, the book was supposed to be a story of triumph. And the second that Valentino gets off the plane, all is supposed to be easy, but it didn't turn out that way. And year after year would go on, and he was still having trouble getting into college, still working a minimum wage job, you know, four years on. And then he was attacked in his home um, and, and, uh, and held at gunpoint. And then it just became clear that this was part of the story, too, the struggle of an immigrant in the U.S. With a gift for understatement, it's been a bad day. Yes. Well, I, 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 I think that what happened to me in Sudan was suffering. But what happened in the U.S. is the price that you pay for struggling to, to work your way out. I was robbed, and I consider that normal things too because it could happen anywhere. I could be robbed in Sudan and beaten. I could be attacked by criminals in Sudan and killed. It happened that that incident took place in Atlanta and that's how I looked at it. And on the other hand, I might have hard time finding a job or so might have had problems getting into college. But that is the price you pay too. You just don't work to college. You work to get there. If you try in one place and you're not accepted, you move into another and try. So whatever happened to me right now, I consider it as part of a struggle to improve your position, to make adventures. Nothing comes free. And I think most people will agree with that. Yeah, but you seem to have paid more than most, actually. Right. Yeah, can I ask one question at the front here? Um, you said there were lost boys, but are there any lost girls? Yes, what happened to the lost girls? Uh, this, is, this story gets very controversial so when you talk more about boys and you leave out girls. The families, millions of thousands of families left Sudan to Ethiopia. And there were girls who were also separated from their families. But because of the systems available by then, many girls got incorporated into existing families. The, the Sudanese or Southern Sudanese aren't they're very critical allowing girls to be by themselves. And many of girls got married later, and they became part of their families. When the resettlement status was accorded to us in 1999, uh, most of those girls weren't there, and the guys remained in distinctive groups. 
and we were the one given the opportunity to go to the U.S. And this story just captured the group that went to the U.S. in which many of us were boys, but there were about 80 girls who went there. And, uh, and I will tell you that my country, or southern Sudan, is a male-dominated society. We need to do a lot to improve the future of women there. And I'm working on that. My foundation is going to go back to Sudan, build community development centers, and raise gender awareness through gender programs and gender teaching. So otherwise, girls were there. They're still girls in Sudan. The royal girls of Pinudu were part of us. We have to finish because there's another event happening in here. But that last, that last answer gives you some idea of the dimension of the effect of this book, which is selling amazingly well in the US and is due to do the same thing here. When you read it, as I hope you will, I think you'll be struck by the resilience of the man that the story is about. And also the skill of the man who wrote the story, Dave Eggers, to make it so compelling on the page. Would you please thank both of them?